0: Well, um, school has been in for two, maybe three weeks now for some of you, long enough for you to know which classes that you like and which ones that you don't, Uh, which ones have lots of homework and which ones don't, which ones will be a breeze and which ones won't, which teachers or professors that you like and which ones that you don't. (sighs) Of course, you do understand if you're homeschooled, that last one's not an option for you. Now, now, perhaps the, the profs have, by this time, given you a syllabus, w- which lays out the class schedule, homework assignments, papers, projects, and then, of course, the all-important exam schedule. Now, I don't want... I you know it's Labor Day weekend. I don't want anybody hyperventilating this morning, but let's consider just for a moment that exam schedule. You see, at the end of almost any formal training or education comes the time of Examination. A time of testing to determine if the student has acquired a grasp of the material and can you regurgitate it. So at the end of the semester, you will likely have some type of EOG or EOC or whatever the heck they're called now, Uh, some final exam, some research paper or project to determine your knowledge of the subject. Did you learn it? What have you learned? So go with me now to the final last day of school. No no hyperventilating. Let me help you. Christmas is around the corner. Snow is falling outside. Some of us actually like snow. Not me. Um, You have just spent a sleepless night cramming. We we all understand that's not the best way to learn, but, well, we did it anyway. And you are now in a caffeine-induced stupor. Now imagine walking into the class prepared to take the final exam. No notes, no books. Just pen or pencil or whatever it is that you're allowed to use, other students and the teacher or the professor. As he or she hands out the exam, you notice quickly, you're observant, you notice it's only one page long. It's ought to be a breeze, you think. In fact, when you get the test, you find that it only has one question, You're quite excited. But then as the teacher finishes handing out the final, he or she says, you must get this question right to pass this class. You get it wrong? You fail. Not only this final, but the entire class. Your entire grade, in fact, the future of your employment opportunities, lie in the answer to this one question. There is a sense in which that is what we have before us today in our continuing study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. You see, Jesus has been the teacher in this class, his class, for over two years. The disciples have been the students. He has taught them through his amazing authoritative teaching, through his miracles, his his healings, exorcisms. We've seen that, his, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, even, though, uh, he, uh, he, even through those debates with the Pharisees, he's been teaching. The disciples have been privileged, you see, to see it all and to hear it all. They have been following the teacher. They've been in the classroom. So have we. We've been in this book for about a year now. And while this may not be the final exam, make no mistake about it, this is a critically important exam. The disciples, again, were there when he performed all those miracles, healed people of every disease, sickness, and malady. They, they, they had watched blind eyes see, added that one last week, deaf ears hear, mute tongue speak, crippled legs walk, lepers healed Deformed bodies restored. They saw storms calmed, dead raised, demoniacs delivered. And these were not your run-of-the-mill, run-of-the-mill, sleight-of-hand tricks. These were bona fide miracles. There could be no explaining them, nor could there be any denying them. They were there to see the opposition mount as a result from the religious elite, from scribes and Pharisees, particularly there in Galilee. They had watched him deftly and adeptly handle their challenges and their accusations despite their best efforts. They could not trap him, nor could they trick him. And, and, and no one spoke with the authority and the wisdom of this man. He was incredible. It was unbelievable. And then as the opposition continued to mount over the, ne- over the past few weeks, perhaps even months, the, the teacher had taken his students um, outside Jewish territory, it was, it was a study abroad. They had, they had traveled to Gentile territory, to Tyre and Sidon, to Decapolis, and, and now we're, we're going to find that they go to Caesarea Philippi. But even in those areas, he's continued to teach. He healed that Canaanite woman's daughter who had been cruelly demon-possessed. When he arrived in Decapolis, a huge Gentile crowd gathered, and he healed All who were sick, he had even fed those same Gentiles with a few loaves and and fish, just like he had done with those Jews back in Bethsaida. You see, the disciples are continuing to learn, and they're in the classroom, and and now they're beginning to understand something critically important, that the kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus came to bring, would eventually transcend cultural and racial boundaries. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The evidence of this teacher's identity has been mounting. It's become rather convincing. So now they arrive in the villages around Caesarea Philippi. It, too, again, is outside Jewish territory. It's located about 25 miles uh, northeast of Bethsaida, right at the base of uh, of snow-capped Mount Hermon. It was a city that uh, Philip the Tetrarch had inherited from his father, um, Herod the Great, he, had, he, he Philip had built it into a magnificent city He had named it after Caesar Augustus it was about fourteen um, a d and named it after Caesar and then well of course himself Philip Caesarea Philippi. The place was full of pagan idolatry as originally called Panaeus or Panion, since it was rumored to be the birthplace of that pagan god Pan who was half Man and half goat and considered to be the guardian of, of nature and, and and the flocks and the woodlands. It's a safe place, you see, for Jesus to, to go with his disciples to escape the ever-present crowds and this rising hostility of the Pharisees there in Galilee. It's when they arrive that Jesus gives them the final exam. Oh, oh, there's still much more to learn in the months to come, just like there will always be more to learn after a class ends, but this is a major exam, and it has one question. Get this one right, and you will pass the class, Uh, disciples. Get it wrong, and you will fail miserably, not just the last two years but everything for your future as well. Look at the text with me, Mark chapter 8, just a few short verses. Verses 27 and following say this. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do the people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets, he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, here comes the answer to the question. You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Do you, you see the final exam question? Jesus asked, who, who do you say that I am? That is a question I want you to understand that is not only for these disciples, it it is a question for every person on the planet from then till now. For every person, frankly, in this room to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? It is the most important question you will ever hear. It is the most important question that you will ever answer. Get it right? You'll pass. Get it wrong? You will fail. And failure will bring disastrous, eternal consequences for your future. Let me give you the outline of the passage as we make our way through this text. Very simple. We're going to see the final exam that he asks them. He asks the same question basically twice. And then we're going to see a passing grade that Peter gives. Now, as we look at the final exam in these few verses, we are going to find that some fail the test. In fact, most. Most fail the test then and now. But we will be encouraged to see that some pass, and we will see uh, what a passing grade means. It's interesting to note that the disciples that, excuse me, that disciples usually ask their rabbis questions. That's what you did. You found a rabbi, a teacher, and you assigned yourself, you connected yourself with, with him, you followed around, him around, and you asked him questions. But Jesus, as he regularly did, uh, turned things around. He did what was unexpected. This time, he is the one asking questions. Let's begin with some wrong answers. Let's begin with those who failed. Because there have always been those people, both then and now, who failed this particular question. Who do people say that Jesus is? Let's look at their answers. First one, some say you are John the Baptist. After all, uh, the message of Jesus and the message of, uh, of John were similar. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John, you remember, was dead by this time. He had been beheaded by Herod Antipas. John had been rightly and highly regarded uh, by the people. They saw him as a prophet. That's going to be a thread that runs through this. They saw him as a prophet. Apparently, in their high regard for John, some people thought, well, we haven't seen the last of this guy. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is a resurrected John the Baptist. That's what Herod Antipas thought. Remember? Jesus raised from the dead. That's why Jesus steered clear of him. Well, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't, couldn't be, John the Baptist. They were contemporaries. They were born six months apart. In fact, well, they were cousins. John had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River some time ago. John, Mark tells us in chapter 1, was the one sent to prepare the way for the Lord. That's also a thread running through here. He's the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah, He prepared the way for the Messiah. And Jesus, maybe John the Baptist, good guess, wrong answer. Some were saying, you're Elijah. Now, now why would they say that? Well, Elijah was was taken to heaven in a whirlwind, uh, riding a chariot of fire, and it became expected that that Elijah would return much the same way. And in fact, Malachi chapter 4 uh, says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is rightly seen as a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah that Elijah would come, notice, (laughs) and announce the Messiah's soon coming. So maybe this guy is is announcing the Messiah to come. Even today, Orthodox Jews leave an empty chair at their Passover celebrations waiting for Elijah. Oh, and then we also remember that Elijah uh, did lots of miracles. Maybe Jesus then is a resurrected uh, Elijah doing lots of miracles all in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That's a good guess. Wrong answer. Failed the test. Over in Matthew... Parallel account, we're going to look at this a couple of times, the disciples answer, uh, others are saying that you're Jeremiah. Again, now why would they say that? Well, first, Jeremiah was seen as a prophet of, of gloom and doom, and Jesus didn't particularly have a lot of positive things to say about the future of Israel and their religious system. Maybe he's a reincarnated Jeremiah. And then not only that, there was a teaching within Judaism about this particular time that came from what's called an apocryphal Book. It's called Second Maccabees. The apocryphal books were those books written after the closing of the Old Testament and before the beginning of the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. They're called apocryphal. They were still writing, but these are called apocryphal books. They highly regarded, but they were not scripture. Very important, not scripture. Well, in that book, Second Maccabees, highly regarded it is said that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense out of the temple right before the Babylonians arrived, and Jeremiah hid them. And he alone knew where they were, if only Indiana Jones knew that. The legend said that he would return these items, this altar and the uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, right before, here we go again, right before the coming of the Messiah. So maybe Jesus is Jeremiah coming right before the Messiah. Good guess, wrong answer. You see the threads running through this? Finally, there were others who didn't try to identify which prophet. They just thought Jesus was, might be one of the prophets. Come back but all in preparation for the Messiah. Some even suggest that he might be the prophet, that is the one that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses to come. They actually got that right, but they didn't know it. I want you to notice some things about all of these guesses. Every one of those responses were well, they were positive answers. They weren't saying bad things about Jesus. And In fact, Mark ha- has frequently recorded people's uh, amazement at Jesus' authority and his teaching and his miracles. They-, they called him a healer. They called him a rabbi. That means a teacher. The, the Syrophoenician woman, like she even called him Lord. Jesus had already referred to himself as the Son of Man a, a couple of times by now. Oh, sure, there were those Pharisees who were uh, accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan, but that's not what the people were saying. Jesus, like, well, he's obviously a good man, a, a great man. He's a, he's a godly man. Uh, he's, a, he's a prophet, <laughs> a man sent by God. Which one? Well, we're not sure, but, hey, we think Jesus is just okay. And, and, and Those are some good things, right? Just not the right thing. Notice also, m- most of these identifications had to do with someone sent to announce the coming of the Messiah. In other words, they saw Jesus as a really good guy right next to the Messiah, maybe even the forerunner to the Messiah, but not quite the Messiah. Hey, good man, a boy, keep it up, Jesus, good work, we like the miracles, we like the healings, we especially like the food, but you're not quite the Messiah. You see, there was a major... Problem, And it had to do with their perception of the Messiah. We've talked about this. We'll talk about it again at the end. Uh, they were looking for a political military leader to overthrow Roman oppression and lead the Jews to the rightful place and glorious victory and, and, frankly, world domination. <laughs> Jesus is just not the kind of guy. I mean, come on. He's from, he, he, he's from Galilee, up, up north. He's a, he's a Yankee Jew. Can anything good come out of New Jersey? I mean, uh, uh, Galilee? And he didn't appear to be, I was born in Wisconsin, just to be clear. And he didn't appear, he didn't appear to be, but I got here as fast as I could. He didn't appear to be gathering uh, or leading an army. His followers, they were a ragtag group. Look who's in his group. I mean, he's got former fishermen and tax collectors and lepers and prostitutes and your run-of-the-mill pagan sinners. I mean, okay, we're impressed with this guy, But if he's gonna be the Messiah, he's he's gotta gather some fighters. He doesn't fit our messianic profile. And that assessment has been the conclusion of people through the centuries. People all over throughout time to the present day have dismissed Jesus. Oh, they may not join the Pharisees and call him demon possessed, they may not even call him a fraud. He did some really good things but they dismiss him nonetheless. They may say great things about him. They may call him a good man, a good example, a man without equal, maybe even a prophet. I mean, Pilate (laughs) said, I find no guilt in this man. Why'd you kill him? Great, that's wonderful. Positive response. He's not such a bad guy. I find no guilt. Diderot uh, referred to him as the unsurpassed. Strauss, the German rationalist, saw him as the highest model of religion. I suppose that's positive. Descartes said that he was the guide to humanity. The French atheist Renan said that he was the greatest among the sons of men. And my personal favorite, Martineau, he was a philosopher, says that he was the flower of humanity. What the heck does that mean? None of those answers quite get it. When you are a sinner, when you need help... When you need hope, the flower of humanity is not quite, quite going to get you there. I'm not going to do it for you. Even today, people dismiss Jesus. Oh, they might see him as a historical figure. I believe what I've heard, most of it, I, 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 what I've read about him in the history books, in my philosophy of religion classes... People see him as a good moral example. I mean, he was quite the guy. (laughs) Did lots of really good things. In fact, most people don't even have a problem with Jesus. Do you like him? Go ahead. Most people don't have a problem with us being here today. I mean, if that's what you want to do on your one day off, uh, on your two days off on the weekend, you want to spend your time here doing that? Labor Day weekend? Are you kidding Go ahead. For most of them, most of them, our religion is somewhat harmless and inconsequential. Now, I know there's this rising uh, 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 lie out there that says that religion is the cause of everything evil and, in fact, the, the, the lie that religion has caused most of the, wor- the wars in the world. I heard a statistic this week that says that, that that is absolutely not true. So you can dismiss that if you're holding on to it. L- less than 7% of wars have been caused by religion. It's absurd. Most people don't have a problem uh, with us being here today. If you want to do that in your spare time, kind of like a round of golf, go ahead. And they dismiss him. You may even be here this morning with some rather warm and fuzzy feelings about Jesus. You kind of like the name. You, you, You may like church. And you may like the people that you see at church. Most of them. But all of those answers are inadequate. There is only one answer to pass this test. Your warm and fuzzy feelings about Jesus, this guy who lived in history, is not going to do it. So Jesus looks at the disciples. Final exam time, guys. This is it. Who do you... And it's in the double emphatic in the Greek. Double emphatic. It comes first in the sentence and he says it twice. Who do you say that I am? Listen to me. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter what other people think, how they answer the question on the test. It doesn't matter. You're sitting in the exam room, you're sitting here, you've been asked a question. It will do you no good to cheat and look at the person sitting next to you. It doesn't matter if you think he's the devil. It doesn't matter if you think he's a good man. It doesn't even matter if you think that he's the Messiah. You see, what, if other people think that, what matters is what you think. How other people fill out the test question does not matter. It does not matter what your parents believe. Your parents cannot believe for you. Your kids cannot believe for you. Your spouse cannot believe for you. Your roommate cannot believe for you. They can't answer the question for you. You must know it and believe it for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter, ever the spokesman for this group, gets this one right, which is highly unusual. (laughs) You are the Christ. Over in Matthew, and I'm going to... Pull this in because it's critically important. He adds the words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A plus, Peter. You got it right. You passed the test. You see, this is the question that Mark has been posing in this book. Even the disciples realize it's the question. Remember back in chapter 4, after he had calmed the storm, they, they looked at each other, asked the question, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's the question that Mark has been trying to answer. And by the way, this is the first time in this book that a human being has answered the question. Yeah, Mark, the narrator, starts with a title in chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's just the narrator. God says it also in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved son. Even the demons get it. They, de- they declared his identity over and over. Chapter 1, I know who you are, the, the Holy One of God. Uh, chapter 3, you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, what business do we have with each other, Son of the Most High God? But here, finally, Peter, a disciple, gets it and proclaims it. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And every person who would seek to be his disciple must understand and declare those Truths. Anything short is the wrong answer. Two things that Peter points out here, two things that are absolutely necessary to be accepted and believed, trusted by faith in order to get this right, to pass the test, and frankly, if I can say this, make it to heaven. The answer to, to the question on this test will affect your future forever. First notice, Peter says, you are the Christ. This, this word, Christ, speaks of what Jesus did. It speaks of his work. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. It's a developing concept, idea in the Old Testament. That's, that's important. They didn't see it centralized in one person quite yet. But here, these guys are beginning to figure it out. In the Old Testament, three different people were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings, and Jesus was all three because he is the anointed one. You are the Christ. There is no other anointed designated by God to bear the sins of the world. Jesus and Jesus only is the Savior of the world. There is no other name uh, given among men by which we must be saved. He is we all know the verse in John 14 he's the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father but by me Jesus said that why is it that people all over the planet in churches today are saying well there might be another way what are you saying? you must know, you must understand if there is any hope for you if there is any hope for your sins to be forgiven it is through this one anointed by God Jesus, the Christ. But not only is the Christ. Secondly, Peter said, again, referring to Matthew, you are the son of the living God. That first, Christ speaks to what he did. Second, son of the living God speaks to who Jesus is. Listen very carefully. Jesus is the son of God, making him one in essence with deity. He was God in the flesh. If he was just another man, a good guy, great example, his death would have accomplished nothing. But as the divine son, the divine, the God son, his death provided atonement for our sins in a way that no one else could. He was the perfect one as God in the flesh, the God-man, to represent man to God and God to man, the only one who could, the mediator. Hebrews 2 says it this way. Look at these verses. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless the one who had power over death. That's Satan. And might free those, that's us, who uh, through fear of death were subject to slavery all of our lives, for surely he, he does not give help to angels. I love that. Ah, can't wait to get there one we look at Hebrews. He does not give help to angels. Listen, all of this garbage about when you die, you go to be an angel. Why would you take a demotion? He did not do this for angels. He did this so that you could become children of God. I don't want to be an angel. I want to be a child of God. You don't, you don't go to be an angel. You want to be an angel, wings, float, harp. What a waste of life, eternity. But he gives help, not to angels, he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That's the one who believes like Abraham did. Now, look, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, he had to be made like us in all things, so that he might become a merciful and high priest in things pertaining to God, so that, look, he could make propitiation for the sins of the people, so that he could turn away God's wrath, which was rightly poised against us. A plus, Peter, you get it. How about you? Who do you say Jesus is? There's only one right answer to the question. Chapter 8 is a dramatic turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' popularity from this point on, it's reached its highest level. It's pretty much on decline from here on out. The opposition will continue to mount until it leads to his cross, which the next few verses that we'll see next time tell us is why he came anyway. From now on, he's going to focus on his disciples. He's going to focus on you. As is about to prepare them, as he is about to prepare us, he has one question for us. Before we can go any further, before we can start making the trip to Jerusalem, listen. Do you know who Jesus is? He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He is God himself in the flesh, and this is what he came to do. Let's pray.